Turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9. Uh, before I begin to read the chapter, I just want to remind you of the historical setting, especially in the back half of Daniel. Uh, Daniel moves around a little bit chronologically. He's not moving strictly in chronological order. And so as we come to chapter 9, that first sentence in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, uh, this is the beginning of the Persian Empire in Babylon. Uh, and so it's been about 70 years since Nebuchadnezzar destroyed, uh, took the first captives from uh, Jerusalem and ultimately in 586 destroyed the city. And so uh, that's the, the, the historical context in which David or uh, Daniel opens up the prophecy of Jeremiah and reads in the prophecy of Jeremiah that God has sent them into captivity for 70 years and that at the end of their captivity with the Babylonians, he would destroy the Babylonians and the Persians would come to power. Well, Daniel's just lived through that. Uh, recognizing all of this, drawing this together, knowing God as Daniel does, he begins to pray fervently. It's probably right not to understand that Daniel wasn't praying and now he begins to pray. We, we know from several chapters ago, Daniel has the, the habit of praying towards Jerusalem three times every day, no matter the consequences. But here he begins to pray fervently and particularly for this promise of God to be fulfilled. And so hear the reading of God's word, Daniel chapter 9 this evening. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord, to the prophet, to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, seventy years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have commanded, or committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice and the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. 
For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, several things. It, uh, I, I struggled with this particular passage because there's so much that, that could be said. Uh, but this evening, I want to focus on aspects of the passage related to the prayer. First, that it is a provocation to prayer in the passage. There's a provocation to prayer in the passage, and that provocation is God's Word. There's a pattern for prayer that we see in the passage that's consistent with the Lord's Prayer and other model prayers that we find in Scripture. So there is a pattern for prayer. And then finally, there's a purpose for prayer. God's glory is the purpose for the prayer. First, a provocation to prayer. Look at the opening sentences, the opening verses of Daniel 9. Notice, and this is the, the very first thing that ought to jump out at you, apart from the importance of the chronology here, uh, where they are in the history of redemption, the very first thing that ought to jump out at you is that it's the, the intense study of God's Word that drives Daniel into prayer. Daniel was studying God's Word intently, and he knew God's Word intimately. He tells us here that it's, it's the prophet Jeremiah and the work of Jeremiah that he's studying. And it, uh, we, we have Jeremiah in our Bibles. We know what verse Daniel is reading, what verses Daniel is reading. He's in Jeremiah 25 and 29. Uh, in these two chapters of Jeremiah, God promises very explicitly that it will be about 70 years and then the Babylonians will be destroyed, and then God will send his people back to the promised land. Less obvious here, if you don't know your, uh, your scripture, is that Daniel is also, uh, the, the prayer here in this chapter, it stands almost exactly opposite. It's the, the counterpoint, if you will, to Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple. Now, we've never had occasion here to do a careful study of Solomon's prayer, not yet, we'll get to it, uh, and, and preparing for this text tonight, I was eager to hurry up and get to it, so it may be sooner than later, but when Solomon dedicates the temple in Second Chronicles 6 and 7, he prays a, a beautiful prayer to God at the dedication of the temple. And in this prayer to God, Solomon, having appropriately acknowledged that the temple belongs to God, having appropriately acknowledged that, of course, God doesn't live in the temple, you, you couldn't possibly build him a home, he then turns and he appeals to God. And he says, God, when 
your people rebel against you. And you bring discipline against your people. When you cause famine in the land because of their disobedience, when, when you send your people off of the land, when you send them away from the land and, and from your presence here in the promised land, when your people turn and they pray to this place, would you hear them and forgive? Please hear them and forgive and restore them to the land. In Second Chronicles 7, after, uh, and, and the prayer is, is a beautiful prayer where he goes through multiple iterations of the ways that people, God's people rebel and that God responds to that rebellion. And in each case, he says, will you hear them when they pray toward this place? He even includes us. He says, when the nations turn towards this, this place and pray, will you hear them and forgive? And of course, we know in redemptive history, the temple represents Christ. Daniel knows this truth, and, and he not only knows the prayer of Solomon and the request that Solomon made, but Daniel knows that in 2 Chronicles 7, God responds to Solomon. And he says, when my people pray, I will hear them. He says, the answer to your prayer, Solomon, is yes. I will hear them and forgive. Daniel knows this. In fact, uh, we, we don't have time on a Sunday evening to go through in detail, but the pattern of Daniel's prayer mimics the pattern of Solomon's prayer. It uses the same patterns of speech, in some cases the same language as Solomon's prayer. Daniel here knows that Solomon cried out to God and said, when your people pray toward this place, will you hear them and forgive and restore them? He knows that God said, yes, I will hear them. I will forgive them. I will restore them. And now Daniel, in studying Jeremiah, realizes that the 70 years has come nearly to an end. And so, in fervent prayer to God, he cries out to God and claims the promises that God has made. Daniel knew God's word and was provoked by God's word to prayer. And he used God's word when he prayed to God. Uh, the, the first thing we want to take this evening, uh, or what we, I want to encourage you to consider from this point, is the relationship between God's word, knowing God's word, and prayer. I, I wondered as I was preparing if we don't pray more often because we're not reading God's Word more often. That a right response to God's Word is prayer, and if we are in God's Word, we will increasingly respond to that Word in prayer. It's, it's from the intense study of God's Word that Daniel rises up, turns his face to the Lord, and seeks the Lord by prayer and pleas for mercy. Why? Not because of, of the magical quality of a book, but because in God's Word, God is revealing Himself to us. In God's Word, we find His promises. In God's Word, we find His character. God is, is telling us about Himself in His Word, and as we study that word intensely as we come to recognize those promises, as we come to understand his character, we will find ourselves increasingly turning to him in prayer and claiming those promises because we know his character, which is that he is faithful to keep his promises. Daniel prays because he reads. 
And we ought to take that example up ourselves. Second, this evening, a pattern for prayer. We find uh, a fairly typical pattern here, but it's instructive to us that Daniel's following this pattern. The pattern that, that Daniel's prayer follows is one of invocation, one of confession, and then one of petition. As Daniel begins to pray in, uh, in verse 4, we see invocation. That is, he, he calls upon the name. To invoke is, is to call uh, upon the name. He calls upon the name of God. And look at the language he uses. O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. When Daniel addresses himself to God, he does so using God's own language. That expression, almost the entire thing. In fact, literally from who keeps covenant all the way up to keep his commandments, the entire expression occurs in Nehemiah. Uh, it also occurs later in the prophets. It's a common uh, expression in parts. Uh, this is the way God has taught us to, uh, to appeal to him, and Daniel follows that pattern. He invokes God. He does this first and foremost by, uh, or because he, he's addressing himself to the one who made the promises. He's addressing himself to the only one who can keep the promises. Daniel opens by addressing himself to God, and in addressing him, he exalts him. O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Do you, do you hear the gentle reminder in Daniel's address to God? He's about to make a, a big ask, if you will. He's about to, to admit their sin, but then plead with God to keep his promises. And he does so beginning by addressing him as the one who keeps covenant. Daniel knows who he's talking to. He knows the character of this God. And in appealing to him, he begins by exalting him. From invocation, Daniel goes to confession the confession begins in verse 5 and goes all the way through to verse 15. And he doesn't hold back. We won't read the whole thing over again, but, but look at a few places here in this confession of sin. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened. That's a far cry from some of the apologies that we hear today, isn't it? A weak sort of, I'm sorry if you were upset, <laughs> right? Can you imagine Daniel saying that to God? God, I'm sorry if what we did bothered you. There's, uh, there's no quick and uh, relatively painless admission. Okay, we sinned, sorry. Now, let's talk about what you can do for us. For 11 verses, Daniel goes on the way we just read. He doesn't just say we've sinned, but he confesses their particular sins particularly. We haven't listened to your servants, the prophets. Rather than not listening, we, we didn't even allow them to continue. We killed them. He establishes in the confession of sin a right relationship, a, a right placement of, of one another, of God and His people. To you, verse 7, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. Daniel holds nothing back in his confession of sin. 
And this is not only an example for us in our prayers as we confess our sins to God, but it's an example to us of what repentance looks like. There's a, a sort of implicit difficulty here in the text, which is Daniel keeps saying, we, we, we. But Daniel's been nothing but faithful in the narrative. Daniel identifies together with his people. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. He repeats that pattern several times and continues to insist upon the sinfulness of his people throughout their history. All Israel, he says in verse 11, transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. He goes on to say, God, you even told us what would happen if we didn't listen and obey, and we didn't listen and obey, and you did what you said you were going to do. You sent us out. You removed us from the promised lands. And we deserved it, Daniel says. You were only right to do what you said you were going to do. He begins with invocation and moves to confession. And having established these things, finally, in this particular prayer, he ends with petition. He's exalted God. He's humbled himself. And now he reasons with God according to God's own character and promises. It's, in its own way, nothing less than a statement of faith. Look at verse 16. This is where he transitions to the petition itself. He's finally going to ask God for something. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill. Because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary. Incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see. Hear, verse 19, forgive, pay attention, act, delay not. It's only after he's exalted God and humbled himself that he then begins to make petition to God. The petition is based on God's character and what he knows of God and the promises that God's made. It's also, though, implicitly consistent with the humility of his confession of sin. He comes knowing that as he reasons with God, making petition, he does so not from a position of strength, not because he has a particular right. God is exalted. Daniel is humbled. And in that condition, Daniel comes and makes his petition. It's an excellent example for us in prayer. We, I think we have very, very effectively picked up on uh, the, uh, the language of God as Father and God's love for us and his gentleness towards us. But I wonder if at times, and, and I'll, I'll just say this based on my own experience and my own prayer life, and you can apply it as appropriate to yourself. I wonder if, if at times we're too casual in our approach to God. Too casual as we address ourselves to him. And we spend no time whatsoever exalting him when we invoke his name. 
and we're half-hearted in the, the humbling of ourselves as we come into his presence, and then having half-heartedly exalted him and half-heartedly humbled ourselves, we rush in to petition to God to tell him what it is that we're here to talk about. Daniel sets an excellent example for us of what it looks like to come into the presence of a holy God who is exalted as one who is humble. To express these things rightly, it's not uh, ancillary, it's not uh, an add-on, it's not a, I'm supposed to do this, I'm supposed to do this, okay, great, we've got these things out of the way. This is a part of the prayer, it's not prelude to what he's really here for. Daniel knows this God that he is appealing to, and he enters his presence as we would enter the presence of a king on earth with respect and dignity and awe. It's an excellent pattern for us and one that we ought to apply perhaps more often ourselves in our own prayers. Finally this evening, a purpose for prayer, God's glory first. We're going to just look at these last few verses in the text. I, I want you to see the logic that Daniel employs here, the, the reasoning that he employs. He's not the only one who uses this in Scripture. The psalmist will use this uh, occasionally as well. But look at what he says. I'm going to begin in verse uh, 13, he said, or 17. He says, Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy, and for your own sake, O Lord... There's almost nothing in the text about their own discomfort. It's implied there. We, we, certainly they're suffering. This is, this is why Daniel's crying out so fervently, because the, he knows the suffering is potentially coming to an end. This is what God said he was going to do. He's going to send them back. They would no longer be exiles, no longer be in, in deportation, no longer have to remember what Jerusalem was like, but they'll be able to go back and to rebuild and to restore and to be in that place where there is this temple that is the, the representative of the presence of God in their midst. All of that is what Daniel wants and longs for, but notice in his petition to God that it's God's glory that Daniel is concerned with. For your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations, and the city that is called by your name. God, your name is the one that's being dragged through the mud because of our sin and because of the way that we have been disciplined by you. Keep your word, Father. Restore us for your name's sake. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy, O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake again. O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. It is your glory at stake, Daniel says. And for your sake, God, for the sake of your name, would you please restore us? 
This is a great comfort to us. It ought to be a great comfort to us because this is, this is what we learn from that truth right there. Not only about how to reason with God, we appeal to Him according to His promises and according to His character, believing the promises He's made and calling out to Him according to those promises. But listen, what's at stake in God keeping His promises is His name. And God, in His perfect wisdom, has arranged all of redemptive history so that doing what glorifies Him is also good for us. It's good for the people of Israel, the the people of Judah, to be restored to Israel. It's a blessing to them to do so, but in doing so, God keeps His promise, and in keeping His promise, He is glorified. Daniel understands this. He appeals to God according to God's glory. In our prayers, we, we rightly take our petitions to God. We rightly express our needs. We cry out in the midst of our suffering. We acknowledge that things are not as they should be. We cry out to God because of temptation and sin, because of the sin that we commit and our grief and hatred of it, because of the sin committed against us and our desire to no longer suffer that way. But listen, at the, at the, the root of all of our prayers of petition, the foundation of those prayers and the end of those prayers, the telos we talked about in Sunday school this morning, the purpose for those prayers must ultimately be God's glory. And don't worry. Because when God glorifies Himself, His people are blessed. God will keep His promises, yes, because He loves us, yes, because He always keeps His promises, yes, because He is powerful to save, Yes, because He is a good God and does all things well. But first and foremost and always, God will keep His promises because His name is at stake in the keeping of His promises. And that's good news for us, His people. Amen? Let's pray.